This episode of Commons is brought to you by Simple Tax. Simple Tax makes filing your taxes easy and makes sure to get you the maximum refund guaranteed. And the best part is that Simple Tax is pay what you want. Visit simpletax.ca/commons to see why 99% of people rate Simple Tax 4 stars or higher. This episode is also brought to you by the Canadian mattress company Endy. Endy is a Canadian sleep brand that wants to offer you the best possible sleep at the fairest possible price. They'll ship the mattress to you in a box and you get a 100-night free trial to see if you like it. To try it out, visit endy.ca, that's E-N-D-Y, and use the promo code COMMONS to get $50 off your first mattress. This week, the family of Colton Bushy traveled to New York City to attend the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Peoples. They were presenting on the case of Gerald Stanley and, of course, their loved one, Colton Bushy, and how the Canadian justice system failed them. Across Canada this week, Indigenous peoples from coast to coast to coast held vigils in support of Colton Bushy's family during their trip to New York. Once again, Canada's legal system has failed a young Indigenous man and his community. As we all know, Gerald Stanley was acquitted, and by an all-white jury. Seemingly, in reaction to this, the government has proposed major changes to the legal system in the form of Bill C-75. This bill has launched a discussion in the legal community about diverse representation on juries. I speak to Professor Kent Roach, Chair of Law and Public Policy at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Law, who weighs in. Of course, these issues go way back before Colton Bushy. We'll hear the story of a Mi'kmaq man who was wrongfully sent to prison for 11 years by an all-white jury decades ago. I'm Ryan McMahon. I'm Hadia Rodrigue. From Canada Land, this is Commons. So, Ryan, the issue of jury representation has been discussed throughout the media over the past few weeks and months. And while academics and advocates have said that the proposed changes are a great first step towards better representation and justice for Indigenous peoples in Canada, um, defense lawyers have come out strongly against the proposed bill. And the biggest thing that's caught the legal community's attention is the proposal to get rid of peremptory challenges. Yeah, I've heard that word a lot over the last few weeks, and uh, I have no idea what that is. So what does that what does that mean? I actually thought it was preemptory challenges for a very long time, and I'm a lawyer, so... <laughs> <laughs> so I shouldn't feel bad for not knowing what it means? No, you should not feel bad. All right, thank you. So basically, it's a way for lawyers, either the Crown or defense attorneys to kick off potential jurors without having to give a reason. Um, Sometimes it's seen as a safeguard to ensure unbiased jurors. You know, you don't like the look of someone or um, maybe you want to have more diverse people on the jury or you want to have some diverse people off the jury or whatever reason you want. Um, And in the Gerald Stanley case in particular, a lot of people feel that the defense uses tool to whitewash the jury. And in the past, this argument has come up in other cases involving Indigenous people and people of color. Okay, that sounds super sketchy. 
just dismissing people off a jury because, uh, yeah, I don't like the color purple and they wore purple. That seems a little ridiculous. So tell me about the, the actual legal history. Um, well, I spoke to Kent Roach about it. My name is Kent Roach. I teach uh, criminal law at the University of Toronto. I've also uh, represented some Indigenous groups in, in some jury selection cases. So the first question I have is, where did preemptory challenges come from? Why do we even have them in the first place? Well, the history is a little bit murky, but the best of my understanding is it was actually uh, uh, almost started off as a as a uh, an advantage for the state in order to make sure that you know you don't have the wrong type of people sitting on a jury. The wrong type of people. Who's who's the wrong type of person for a jury? So I actually asked Professor Roach about this. Traditionally, the jury has not been a very democratic institution, and it used to just be, you know, property-owning men. And even then, the peremptory challenge was designed to make sure that you don't have the wrong type of people sitting on a jury. And so we developed this system where a lawyer's legal hunch or bad feeling could be enough of a reason to strike someone off of a jury. What started as an ability of the prosecutor to say, well, we don't like this person because of something that we we know about them has developed in into giving each side a limited number of peremptory challenges. How were peremptory challenges used in the Gerald Stanley case specifically? Well, I mean, you know, we know from reports from the courthouse as well as from, you know, I think very brave advocacy by Mr. Uh, Bushy's family that uh, they were used to keep five visibly Indigenous people uh, to remove them from the jury. The resulting jury contained no visibly Indigenous um, people. And I think, you know, everyone who has uh, been alive in Canada for the last three months knows the effect that that has had on the public confidence in the jury's verdict to acquit Mr. Stanley not only of murder, but even of manslaughter. So we know these challenges can be used in a discriminatory manner. Why have we kept them all this time? Well, I spoke to Professor Roach about that, and he mentioned that there had been a conversation about getting rid of peremptories, um, starting with the 1991 Manitoba Aboriginal Inquiry. And one of its major recommendations was to abolish these challenges. And what exactly launched this inquiry? So there were two cases that this inquiry stemmed from. But for our purposes, we'll talk about the Helen Betty Osborne case. And so Helen Betty Osborne was a Cree woman uh, from Norway House, and she came to the PAW uh, as uh, many Indigenous people uh, living in remote and traditional communities, uh, unfortunately, have to do to, to get her education. And she was abducted, sexually assaulted, and murdered. She was only 19 years old. Four white men were charged in the heinous crimes against Osborne, and it took 16 years to convict one of the men. One received immunity for testifying against his friend, and the other was never charged. And they had a jury trial in the PAW, which is in northern Manitoba. And between them, um, I think they had 40 peremptory challenges, and they were able systematically to keep all of the indigenous people uh, who had come to, to, to be potential jurors off of serving the jury. So basically, we had an all-white jury in a city and a judicial district where 
30, 40% of the people are indigenous. And what was the outcome of the Manitoba Aboriginal Justice inquiry? Um, I mean, they did recommend that we should get rid of peremptory challenges. And of course, uh, I support that recommendation. And now the government has uh, put that into the very controversial uh, Bill C-75. So again, we had this recommendation to get rid of these challenges, but the federal government did not uh, follow this recommendation. And if we skip ahead to 2013 in Ontario, there was a review done of Indigenous representation on juries. This review was conducted by the Honorable Frank Iacobucci. And the report that he compiled said basically this is a very complex problem. Um, there is um, alienation of Indigenous people from the Canadian criminal justice system. And he you know, proposed a number of recommendations. But one of the things that Justice Iacobucci said is none of this will work if discriminatory use of peremptory challenges, whether by the accused or by, by the prosecutor, can be used to keep Indigenous people off of juries. And again, that's something that, you know, Justice Iacobucci's recommendations, I think, sometimes have been lost in a lot of the debate about Bill C- C-75 and the issue of abolishing peremptories. And what have other people in the legal community said about this uh, getting rid of peremptories? Well, I asked Professor Roach about this, and here's what he had to say. Since Bill C-75, a lot of defense lawyers, some of who I know and that I respect, have been saying, well, you know, if you take this away, in my practice, this is actually going to make juries less diverse. So basically what they seem to be saying is that they're using peremptory challenges in cases where they're representing racialized accused to exclude, I guess, white jurors so that they have some racialized groups on the jury. Another response is that it's mostly Crown attorneys who abuse these challenges. What do you make of that idea? Well, I mean, I don't doubt that Crown attorneys abuse them, but I kind of ask my friends in the defense bar, why haven't you been able to challenge this if this is actually going on? And they haven't been able to challenge this. So, um, you know, again, I come back to, you know, the best way to deal with this is not to build in some American type system where we spend a lot of time trying to challenge discriminatory uses of peremptory challenges, but just getting them removed all together. So after the Stanley case, many also said that because of the realities of northern travel um, and socioeconomic issues and the conventional mail and communication practices in these more remote communities, a disproportionate number of Indigenous jurors do not answer their jury summons. How do we address these issues going forward to ensure more representation in the panel and in the ultimate jury itself? There's a variety of things we can do, and Justice Iacobucci recommended them. But I think that until we get rid of peremptories, we know that there were five Indigenous people who, despite all those barriers, came and answered the call for jury duty in Battleford, and they were basically told by Mr. Stanley and his lawyer to go home. Uh, so I think that's you know that's kind of job number one. Job number two is we need to look at the pay that uh, jurors are given and their expenses. 
I actually took a look at this. Saskatchewan is actually not the worst. Uh, jurors in Saskatchewan are actually better paid than jurors in Ontario, which seems a little bit odd. Uh, but um, uh, we need to look at that. Uh, we need to look at, you know, maybe in appropriate cases, not having the jury trial in Battleford or the Paw, which are kind of the biggest towns in these districts, but in appropriate cases, moving the jury further north to uh, communities where it may be easier for Indigenous people to show up uh, for jury service. But, you know, I think a real question now is, if I was an Indigenous person and I knew that I was dealing with a criminal justice system that over-criminalizes and you know, puts my relatives in jail and also fails to protect my relatives from crime and also uses peremptory challenges to keep me off of the jury, uh, I'm not sure I'd want to obey a jury summons to come and serve as a juror. Well, this has been incredibly helpful, even as a lawyer who actually knows things about uh, about juries. So I know our listeners will appreciate your perspective very much. Oh, good. Well, I'm, I'm, I've, I've really enjoyed talking about it. You know, and as I say, I mean, we should not forget that, you know, this was a terrible tragedy. I mean, as was the Helen Betty Osborne case and the families and the communities, I think, have been incredibly strong and incredibly dignified and I just hope that something good can come out of um, uh, what is just a tragedy. One thing I find really interesting, Ryan, is this presumption that people of color will be biased towards other people of color. But there's never presumption that white people will be biased towards other white people. Right. And when you frame it that way, you know, what is the response? Because it's very that's very clear to me that this is a problem and it's indefensible. But I think it's important to say that this even just goes beyond jury selection. I mean, the whole justice system, I mean, there's a, a joke that I've heard many people in Indian countries say it's, it's actually referred to as the just us system meant to protect whiteness. And there's, there's one case that really illustrates the multi-level failings of the judicial system and the policing system for people of color and indigenous people. Um, and that's the case of Donald Marshall Jr. Yeah, that's that's actually one of the better known wrongful conviction cases in Canada. And, you know, it happened in Nova Scotia when apparently all white juries were the norm. But Donald Marshall Jr.'s case had, had bigger problems than just an all white jury. And unfortunately, he passed away in 2009, but uh, I had the opportunity to speak to his sister. Ryan. Yeah. It's April. I know. Taxes. Spring showers bring spring flowers and taxes. This episode of Commons is brought to you by Simple Tax, which will actually make your life a lot easier. Simple Tax gets you the maximum refund. That's their guarantee. And... Um, get a load of this. If you use simple tax, it's pay what you want. Now, I don't know how I'm going to have this conversation with my accountant and my bookkeeper. They're not pay what, what, what I want. And so simple tax actually truly is pay what you want. Listeners of this podcast have the chance to go to simpletax.ca slash commons to see why 99% of people rate simple tax 
four stars or higher in their service. This episode is also supported by the Canadian mattress company, Endy. Now, Hadia, listeners of this podcast know that this has been an epic journey for you to unbox the Endy. How's it been going? I kept the box because I'm moving. So I'm hoping to roll the Endy back up into the box and then move it. Seems like it's going to be much easier than with my old school mattress. The fact that it comes in a box is a miracle itself. The fact that you're going to move and put it back in the box is another miracle. But the other miracle is that they ship the mattress to you for free and give you a 100-night free trial to see if you like it. Now, you're well within your 100 nights, but so far, you love it. You're not sending it back, right? No, I'm down with Andy. They're a Canadian company that wants to give you the best possible sleep at the fairest possible price. And we have a deal for Commons listeners, right, Hadia? Yes. Buy local, support Canadian businesses. Visit endy.ca, that's endy.ca, and use the promo code COMMONS to get 50 bucks off your first mattress. Thanks, Andy. Donald Marshall Jr. was a Mi'kmaq man who was wrongfully convicted of a murder he didn't commit. What is often not mentioned is that it was an all-white jury that convicted him. Junior, as his friends and family refer to him, was exonerated of all charges and maintained his innocence throughout the 11 years he was in prison. A royal commission was launched after he was exonerated to find out why this had happened. It found there were many problems with his case. After Junior was released from prison, he spent his life advocating for Indigenous rights and was involved in a Supreme Court case where he fought for a treaty right for the Mi'kmaq people to catch and sell fish. I spoke to Roseanne Sylvester. Donald Marshall Jr.'s sister, to hear the story of her brother, her family, and how this case impacted them. I was born in Nebuchadnezzar First Nation, and I'm the oldest of the family of Donald Marshall, my father. I was the oldest sibling in that family. Can you tell me about your brother? Tell me, um, tell me what, kind of, what kind of brother he was, what kind of person Donald Marshall Jr. was. Oh, he was, he was a really fun to be with, and you know, he was just a you know ordinary boy growing up on the native community, and he helped my father with his work. You know, my father was a drywaller, and he helped with you know the family, and you know just a typical boy hanging out with you know his friends, and uh, he had a lot of friends, and uh, oh, he was a you know really good person. What happened to your brother? Well, that night he went out, and uh, he just went to a dance, and after the dance, you know they went down the park, and they met up with these two to uh, men, and it ended up that uh, one of the men stabbed Sandy Seal, nicked my brother on the left hand, and then my brother got charged about a week later for the murder. John McIntyre, he was the chief of police at the time, the one that really put my brother behind uh, bars. This is directly from the Royal Commission itself. Sergeant McIntyre, who took on the case after the initial investigation, quickly came to the conclusion that Marshall had stabbed Seal, even though he had no evidence of this because he considered Marshall a troublemaker, and partly because, in our view, he shared what we believe was a general sense in Sydney's white community at the time that Indians were not worth as much as whites. He was the person that was really responsible for all the, the witnesses. He made them change their stories. The two witnesses on the case were teenagers. One was a 14-year-old who was on probation for a minor crime, and the other was a 16-year-old who was mentally unstable 
and was known to make up stories. Like I told you, there was three things right off the bat that could have prevented him from being in prison. Nobody took it serious. Nobody said, okay, no, let's, let's look at this. You know, they never did that. Right. How did you feel when the jury convicted your brother? Oh, my God, we were devastated. And when my father called, I could hear my mother crying in the background. And my father said, you better come up. He said, be with your mom. So I, I went up there and I stayed with my mom. And she was, she was devastated, you know. Like, she was, like, so brokenhearted. And, like, and my father, now my father was a grand chief of the, the Mi'kmaq Nation at the time. And it was hard for him to uh, face the people the Mi'kmaq people too, and, and, and the people outside, and that all, you know, that thinking that there's, his son was a murderer. So that was hard on him because he had a business. He was self-employed. He was a drywaller, and he, was, he worked with my two brothers, um, my younger brother and junior. After this all happened, people wouldn't hire him. So his business went down. So, you know, he suffered from that, and uh, the family suffered too because he couldn't provide for them. Once that jury deliberated and found your brother guilty, what kind of effects did it have in, in the broader community? Well, it affected everybody on, in the community because he was like 17, you know, and, um, <clears throat> you know, given life in prison, you know, that's, that's hard on the family, hard on the, you know, his friends that he used to hang around with. And it was just hard on the whole community, you know, that the 17-year-old, you know, was found guilty and sentenced to life, you know, and life is, you know, it seems a long time. But it, my mother was just, like, she was, like, so brokenhearted. And, like, there was nothing we could do about it. They put an appeal for it. They couldn't do nothing. My father was devastated, too. And, you know, it was just, um, you know, we we're going to lose a brother. It was almost like him dying for 11 years because we didn't see him. You know, we couldn't even call him. The only time we could call him was Christmas. Even when my grandmother died in 1977, they wouldn't let him come home because they said he was high risk. You know, he just wanted to come home for my grandmother's funeral. She was 91 when she died. Talk about the fact that an all-white jury was the jury that um, was trying your brother. I'm sure that not all of them liked the Native people and you know, maybe if there was uh, like a native juror, maybe, you know, it would have maybe different, you know, but they have to all, all 12 of them have to, you know, be unanimous, right? With the all-white juror and the way my brother's case was, like there was a lot of involvement with the um, police at the time, the chief of police and all that. So they had, they had to take that into consideration, you know, that we have to find him guilty or our police force is going to look bad. The false conviction and subsequent imprisonment changed him. Can you talk about how that, how that changed him? It was a dangerous place for him to be because, you know, at 17 years old and you're locked up with all the real killers, you know, and the real murderers and whatever. You go in one door and the door would slam behind you. It was like a really scary place to go. We, we went to visit him at, when he was in prison, but we couldn't talk about what happened because the guards were kind of listening, but we were fortunate because we were able to speak our own language with him. It was hard to, it was hard to uh, leave because we know we wouldn't see him again for a long, long time. And the look in his eye that, you know, look, I'm innocent and I'm in here and I can't get out. I don't know how he managed to be in there 11 years without going crazy. Do you remember the day your brother was released from prison? I don't remember the date, but I remember my mother and father went up to get him, and they didn't tell anybody. My mother and uh, where's mom and dad? I don't know. They went up to New Brunswick. Oh yeah. So here they went to get him, and they didn't tell anybody. 
because they didn't want all the, the news and all the media attention. So they went to get him and they, uh, <clears throat> they just drove him back home. How did you feel when you saw him? And the first time that I seen my brother was when he got off the elevator at the Lord Nelson. Wow, that must have been an, a beautiful moment. Oh, it was. Oh, it was just, just, just so happy, you know. And my kids were jumping all over him, and it was like the first time they really seen their uncle, you know. And my brother was so funny. He said, "Why don't we get some KFC?" <laughs> <laughs> so we had like we had like about four buckets of. Um, Kentucky Fried Chicken, I swear to God, I said, I'll never eat chicken again. But, you know, it was like a happy occasion, right? You know, but uh, it was one of the happiest moments of our lives, I guess. In 11 years in prison, you're not going to get a whole lot of fresh air. And, you know, I think that being in prison all those years did a number on his lungs. Like the year when he came out, you know, he enjoyed his life. And then all of a sudden, you know, he was, you know, we thought he was, you know, pretty healthy. And next thing you know, he's, you know, he started getting sick and then he started using puffers. And then next thing you know, he's, you know, he has, um, um, he has to get a double lung transplant. We enjoyed being with him and we went boating with him. You know, we did everything to, you know, to try to make up for the time that we lost when he was in prison. Yeah. Uh, Roseanne, uh, th- thank you so much for, for taking the time to share your brother's story with us and to share your story with us. Um, we really, really appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you very much. After Junior um, was exonerated of the charges, the Royal Commission produced 82 recommendations that really had a serious impact on the criminal justice system in Nova Scotia. And he was eventually awarded a lifetime pension of one and a half million dollars in compensation for his suffering. But I mean, no amount of money can replace that lost time with your family, that lost time in your life. And, you know, who knows what kind of leader and person he could have gone on to be if that hadn't happened to him. Like he was already able to achieve so much um, having had that experience. I mean, think about what he could have done without that psychological torment. And in the case of of Junior, I mean, this is a young man whose dad was a grand chief who certainly after he was exonerated and released from prison was a a natural leader, someone that was dependent on and counted on for, uh, for many different things inside of the community. When you think about the potential of people. Uh, when they get locked up and the way that potential is taken away. I mean, the human cost of the, of cases like this, as you said, Hadia, you can't put a, you can't put a financial number on that. You can't put an, uh, you know, a, a payment on, on what that robs the individual of in life, but also the, you know, the family, the community, ultimately, you know, the nation and the people, people around them. And, and, and junior did hold a, a very important responsibility in the community as a fisherman. And, we see those relationships in community as, as interdependent. And when we remove people from our community and our families, it has a huge effect. And, it, and it's one we can't even really measure or, or, or really understand. You see this dehumanization of young men of color in so many different ways in the legal system. From when these men are accused or arrested to when they're their victims themselves.
That is our Commons episode for this week. I'm Ryan McMahon. And I'm Hadia Rodrigue. Thank you for tuning in. If you have feedback for us, we'd love to hear it. Record a voice memo. Send it to our producer, Latifa at CanadaLandShow.com. That's L-A-T-I-F-A at CanadaLandShow.com. This episode is produced by Latifa Abdin and Ellen Payne-Smith. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton, and our music is produced by Nathan Burley. If you want to get at us, find us online. And if you like what we do, tell your people about it. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer.